This is Speaking of Shakespeare, conversations about things Shakespearean. I'm Thomas Dabbs, recording today from Aoyama Gakuin University in central Tokyo. This conversation is with Janelle Jinstead of the University of Victoria. Janelle is also the director of the map of early modern London online. Before we begin, I should add that this series is funded with institutional support from Aoyama Gakuin University, and also by a generous grant from the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science. Janelle, I finally get to meet you. How are you? I'm well. Thank you, Thomas. How are you? I am. I'm wonderful. I'm wonderful because you're here or kind Thank of. You. You're kind of here, right? I, w- I wish I, I could have come to Japan <laughs> someday. Well, you no, know, that's in your future. I'm looking into my Japanese crystal ball over here and I see Janelle in Japan. Excellent. And I'm talking glad. to some of my colleagues. I have two sets of uh, two sets of uh, similar nerdy uh, people, the, the Shakespeare group that I'm with, and uh, they will a lot of a lot of them will watch this because a lot of them are very interested in cutting edge digital technology. And you are right there. You are at the front line. And also, I'm involved with another group of the the Japan um, Digital uh, Association for Digital Humanities, and uh, and the journal. They're, they're <laughs> your friends that you make in digital humanities outside of the early modern area that mm-hmm. we're in, mm-hmm. right? And they they become very important because there's everything is transferable. Of course, it's the the base, the root, the the digital grounds on which we work is the same, whether you're doing Shakespeare or uh, Charles Dickens or, or a Buddhist text from some, you know, old, old time, a long time ago. Right. Uh, so what I wanted to do is to get you on, uh, get you on to talk about your recent work. I have to, I'm sorry, I have to look down here at my notes because there's some, uh, <laughs> there's a lot, you have quite a lot going on here. And Limdo, explain to us what that acronym is and what that is doing to help preserve, to help to, to preserve the past for the future. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Lemdo stands for Linked Early Modern Drama Online. It's been a twinkle in my eye since 2014 when Brett Greatly Hirsch and I were sitting in the grad club at the University of Victoria trying to come up with an acronym for a new platform for early modern drama. Um, we, it was really important to us to create a digital platform that would serve all early modern drama. And this is what we came up with. We've been through three grant cycles, um, the third one successfully, and we now have a tiny pot of money, $200,000 to, it, it seems like a lot, but it's split among a number of partners. We have 10 partner institutions and 17 co-applicants on yeah. the grant. Um, and, they, and people should know that the institutions themselves like to take a a cut of these yeah. grants. Well, that's not they, actually, a, that's not allowed in Canada. It's a bit oh, of a challenge. A, no, it's a bit of a challenge oh, for us Canadians to oh. partner with international organizations because they often expect to be able to take some money off the top to use to keep the lights on at the institution. Yeah. Um, but, you know, everybody we've collaborated with, some are in the UK, some are in France, Spain, Australia, New Zealand, the United States. Eventually, we've worked it out. And in the UK, they're following the same model that we are here in Canada. Good. We, we started creating the platform in 2018. 
I had a I had a foreboding that the Internet Shakespeare Editions platform was going to fail, and uh, I was already intending in my time with the ISE to re-tag all of the texts in the language of the Text Encoding Initiative, which is an XML language um, widely used by folks in the literary community. Using that tag set means that our texts are interoperable with other texts. And uh, my fears came true. The Internet Shakespeare Editions platform did indeed fail in late 2018. If you go to the Internet Shakespeare Editions.uvic, uh, what is it? Internet Shakespeare.uvic.ca website right now, what you look at is a static version of the website as it was last um, spun out by the server in late 2018. Those are all HTML pages. There's no back end. I didn't no, know that. No, there's no back end to that website anymore and it can't be updated. I, I'm using that today. I use it. I use it every week in my mm -hmm. uh, Shakespeare class, the Hamlet. Good. Because yeah, it's a wonderful Hamlet by David Bevington. We're online. Yeah, David Bevington. Yes, yep. the, the David Bevington and with annotations and we're online. So it, it, uh, it saved me. All right. So, you know, how do you, I, I would walk in with my Arden edition, you know, in, in the day and, you know, there, there's your class. You can put things on the overhead projector and so forth and make prints. We went online and those annotations are gone, right, from your text, but there mm -hmm. they were. So, but that works fine, but that's not that, that I'm looking at a ghost. Is, I'm looking at a ghost. You are looking at a ghost. Yes. Yeah. A Hamlet. <laughs> I know, and I've had to oh, remediate no. some of David Bevington's work, and I often think about him coming back, you know, to wet my almost blunted purpose. Keep going, Janelle. <laughs> Save my Hamlet. <laughs> please do, please do. Well, no, I'm, Brett I'm and very I... fortunate to work with some absolutely fantastic developers at the University of Victoria, and when the Internet Shakespeare Editions was given to the University of Victoria, not to me personally, to you, Vic. Yeah. Um, the Faculty of Humanities took on the responsibility of preserving the work that had been done. It's an important part of digital humanities legacy. Um, and I knew I would never be able to replicate it as it was. It's just too big, something like uh, 1.23 million pages. And so we decided to preserve it as it is. And that liberates us to build something new um, that builds on that legacy preserves some of it in a new form and allows us to grow in new directions. I think I will ask our audience to make their own analogy because I might say something kind of dumb, but <laughs> it would be, you know, the parts that you used for a car in the 1950s and 60s could not be used in a Tesla right now. Right. Okay. It's right. basically yeah. that. And, uh, and it, we could get into the, uh, uh, very much into the weeds of, in, of encoding, but what you and working with Brett and others, uh, and this is Brett Great-Lehirsch. I, I did uh, a talk with him about two weeks, mm -hmm. three weeks ago, and he, he kind of helped off camera bring me up to speed on what was going on with uh, Janelle and others. So, uh, what you're doing with TEI, Text Encoding Initiative, you're taking a, what is now a, a, a tradition in text encoding, how, mm -hmm. you, how you arrange the background, what, how, how you set up things. Let me try a little under the hood of the old car, how you set up things under the hood mm -hmm. so that the car will run and keep running in per perpetuity. Mm -hmm. 
right? right? In perpetuity. That's the idea because this is adaptable to all the other things that you see coming in the future. But when you're dealing with ISC or internet Shakespeare editions, one of the happiest things that's ever happened to me as a digital user, a teacher of Shakespeare, is that it's very hard to make the transition from the technology they used, what, 15 years ago? They started it in 1995. Oh, good grief. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, they started there, in 95. There was a, the core of the project was actually released on floppy disks in 1990, the Shakespeare's Life and Times, and that grew into the website that was launched in 1996. Um, yeah. And the technologies have changed a number of times. I came on board in Ooh. 2011 and I left the project in 2018 to focus on Lemdo and then the ISE joined Lemdo. So, yeah. so I have thinking, some responsibility for the ISE again. Yeah, you're back with the ISE again, the uh, Internet mm-hmm. Shakespeare editions, which is good. But I'm just thinking these, uh, what, PHP, ASP, are the things mm-hmm. that I used to use when I was, yeah. I was a hobbyist. Don't take me very, don't take me uh, away from chapter one, uh, but I was a hobbyist in programming. For instance, uh, Bevington's annotations mm-hmm. of the Hamlet, is that somewhat preservable in the trans- transition? Yeah. Well, let, let me tell you what survived. Okay. The, ser- the server failed. The software package that delivered up the web pages to users failed. So we could no longer generate websites on the fly when people made a call on a server. Most people don't understand that when a web page is made, the server has to go get the header and it has to go get the footer and it has to go get the text and it has to get the annotations and then it has to get the style sheet that tells you, tells the processor what color to make things. They have this idea that what you get when you call up a web page is a page that's pre-made for you. (laughs) You know, here you go, here's your page. (laughs) That's not the way it works. Um, so the software that made the pages out of all of the backend files failed. The files themselves still exist. And so we have all of the work that David Bevington and other people did in XML files, in TXT files, and various other files. They're all con- encoded in a boutique, boutique markup language that was developed for the ISE itself. And it's... Um, kind of a a mashup of different markup languages and some markdown languages. We wrote uh, processing that allowed us to convert all of those .txt and .xml files to a rough approximation of Lemdo's TEI XML. Uh Uh-huh. And we mm-hmm. called that conversion. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it did take a few hours per file because we found that we had to go in and tweak the files to make the conversion run. It would, it would sort of hiccup and then we'd have to, it's like going in and putting the chain back on the bike so you can ride it again. <laughs> okay, that's, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and then we do hand remediation of those files because there are some things that the computer can't do for us. I've, I've just written a paper about this for the Balassage Markup Conference um, about the challenges of taking somebody else's encoding and trying to convert it to a new encoding language mm-hmm. while respecting their scholarship and the argument that they wanted to make about the text mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, so if anybody wants the original files that were marked up in what we call IML, ISE markup language, they're certainly welcome to to have them. They may be of some value. Um, and I, I hope that the editors who produce those files will be reassured knowing that their original work survives. 
there's just no software to process it into a web page. So we also have the static output, which I think of as like a photograph of the old ISE site. It, it bears witness to the fact that the ISE site existed, but the ISE site itself is, is no more. It's gone. Right. So Lindo then is going to be, let's, let's say, create a, a foundational, maybe you could use basement structure for not only internet Shakespeare editions, but for other sites that are mm -hmm. in development now in various stages in early modern. And if you could tell us, so you have to go into partnership, mm -hmm. right? And say, you please accept our, the basement <laughs> that we have created here. <laughs> right, or, right. Actually, it is a more of a basement for their foundation on which they build their house or cathedral right. or whatever you want to call it right. right so and you're expanding the underground the um, infrastructure of several sites right is that mm -hmm. yeah right so um it's like the house fell down i love the house metaphor the house fell down uh, there's no house anymore so lemdo is building a new house from scratch and there were a number of projects that were left homeless uh principally the Queen's Men's Editions and Digital Renaissance Editions. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Uvic staticized those projects at the same time. So it, when you go to their old URLs, you are also looking at a picture mm -hmm. of their old website. But obviously, um, none of these three projects was finished. Editors are still working. They want their work published. Some of them are depending on publication for tenure, promotion, merit pay. Um, and so we can't just let it go. So we have to we have to take in these projects and give them a home. And I'm I'm really enjoying working with these plays as somebody who ends up teaching Shakespeare a lot. It's such a delight to read the famous victories of Henry V. And one does end up reading very carefully while remediating the code of the file and bringing it up to speed. Yeah. Um, so so QME, I, I, mean, I won't speak too much about their intentions. Um, but I'm very happy to be their host, to be re-architecting their website so that it fits in the new Lemdo home and to be working really closely with the leaders of that project to bring their work back, um, back to life. And I'm doing the same with Digital Renaissance Editions. I've had a role with Digital Renaissance Editions for a while, first on their advisory board and then on their, and then as a, an assistant coordinating editor. And Brett has very kindly taken me and Sarah Neville and James Mardock um, into his organizational structure at the highest level. So we're a kind of a quadrumvirate now running the project um, because my first love is actually non-Shakespearean drama. Shakespeare is what we end up teaching, but I got to Shakespeare via early modern drama. So uh, we're we are completely rebuilding the digital Renaissance edition site. We have a few projected sites coming on stream. Um, we're waiting for grant funding and confirmation, so I won't say anything about any of them except for the um, Moemel Mayoral Shows Anthology. We're, we call it MOMS for short, M-O-M-S. Um, we were trying to edit all of the pageant books from the early modern period and publish them on the map of early modern London website. But the Moemel website isn't really designed for modern editions. Mm. And I thought, I thought to myself one night, one of those moments where you wake up at two in the morning and think, 
why am I doing this? <laughs> I have just built a platform for editing plays and play-like things. So we migrated what we had already done over to this forthcoming mom's anthology. Um, and, and, you know, that means that it can be taken into the, the big tent of the digital Renaissance editions. So I want to make sure I'm just going to repeat that basically what the, what we're talking about now with Limdo is part of a general infrastructure for several sites and more that will come. Mm -hmm. but there's I think at the center of things always is Shakespeare, Internet right. Shakespeare editions and and forming online, uh, very readable, of course, but also annotated editions. Uh, and as Brett pointed out to me, there are different types of annotations. And of course, that <laughs> means something different technologically. But what I like is the underlying the option to underlying words like unfold yourself when mm -hmm. I'm in a second language situation, uh, when a, there's a command given to unfold yourself, my students go, they look in their dictionaries, <laughs> right? You know, what is the, uh, what are you talking about a letter? Right. Uh, and they're in the so, culture that invented origami. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Unfold. That's right. So, uh, and a, a billion other examples I could uh, put mm -hmm. forward. So those annotations are important, but at the core is the internet Shakespeare editions, Brett's idea. And you're part of a very integral part of that is to remind us that the rock and roll revolution wasn't all the Beatles. <laughs> okay, <laughs> the uh, the Renaissance or early modern or whatever happened, whatever blew up in the second half of the 16th century and remained and still remains with us was Shakespeare, yes, mm -hmm. and a lot of other things, right? And building beyond Shakespeare to these other texts that are sometimes hard to find in printed mm -hmm. copies because yeah. it's, honestly, it's hard to, to sell them if you're a publisher and so forth. So open access online editions of these fabulous, uh, fabulous works of literature. And, mm -hmm. and in some cases, maybe not so fabulous, but just interesting in, in historical terms, right? So mm -hmm. you have that. And then the Queen's Men, this famous acting company that not everybody knows a lot about. And it's not the first place that you go to when you want to start studying Shakespeare or something, but is essential to the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And where is the, there's one more that I'm, that's QME, that's Queen's Men. And Queen's Men, QME, DRE, Moms. Mo which one is Moms? I'm Moms, uh, the mayoral shows anthology. Oh, the mayoral. Now that's down. I have that with your uh, map of early modern London site, which I, I think we're going to go to now. And then I want to go back to Limdo and talk more about TEI and, mm -hmm. and, and really do get into the weeds for some of our fellow nerds who can follow. And we'll, mm -hmm. just, we'll try because uh, they, okay. they will be interested in what actually you're doing under the hood there. And, you know, as you, you know, those little. <laughs> You know, the, what do you call those little carts that you lie back on and you shove yourself underneath the car? You know, the mechanics use. Oh, a yeah. dolly? A dolly. That's right. Yeah, a dolly. You know, you're kind of one of the people who gets on the dolly and looks under mm -hmm. there or in right. the well. There's a kind of well where you uh, jack up the car and you look underneath. Okay, so we'll go back to that. But I, I have to. And this is just something that I, I'm in. I'm just in love with the site, the map of early modern London, and you call it Moemal, 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 M-O, lowercase O, 
EML, map of early modern London, which is a, uh, just, if there were something like, you know, my, a lot of my students visit to London and go to Harrods or something and just absolutely love Harrods. And I love Harrods, but this is Harrods for people like us. And it includes some other things, but what I just so deeply, deeply, deeply love about that is the map. Do you say Agus or Agus? I say Agus. I say Agus. Okay. Whew, mm -hmm. I didn't want to. Okay, good. I, yes, uh, I've you, been saying that at conferences, but you, it's okay. We don't know. In, do in we? a way, it doesn't matter because he didn't draw the map. <laughs> the map, which is another thing I love. It's another ghost. It's another ghost out there, right? He right. It's <laughs> credited. I hope that happens to one of us, you know, 400 years from now, but we get accredited with uh, designing something we didn't design or something like that. But yeah, uh, the. Uh, the <laughs> the Hagus map of London, uh, Janelle. I this was a few years ago. This has been up for a while, and I have for all of my career wondered about bookshops at St. Paul's. And Peter Blaney back in the '90s went through and diagrammed them, and I have the book right behind me, and mm -hmm. I've studied it and studied it and studied and become obsessed with it. Now the map is much more of a bird's eye view, right? But it, it makes me feel a relationship with this space of the mind that sometimes I did not feel completely connected with. And it's, it's opened up things in terms of my reasoning. And mm -hmm. I, I'm not just talking about me. I think many, many people that you and I have not met. It just opens up these, these doors and makes us see the geophysical relationship with the printed text that we are you know, we're trained in. So with, with that exhortation, you know, <laughs> well, let, let me tell you something about the map. Please um, tell us about I, the map. I'm going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll, I'll start with an anecdote. I was reading um, a book by Mark Haddon recently, which is an adaptation of Pericles. And I was reading it because it was an adaptation of Pericles, but there's this fantastic chase scene in it where, um, Shakespeare's ghost is leading the ghost of Samuel Rowley through the streets of London. I thought, oh, I could map this on the Aegis map. Finished reading the book and I turned to the credits and it turned out that he had actually mapped the journey of his characters on the Aegis map. <laughs> but he had done that on the Aegis map, the physical map. No, he done it on our website, which was so much fun. It was so much fun to get a credit in the That's, back of a Booker-nominated novelist's book. Of course. Of course, that's where you would go. You would just type in to see if you could find the map. And then suddenly, ho-woom, you get this interactive mm -hmm. thing where, I don't mean to say thing in a pejorative, you get an interactive, <laughs> you can interact with this. You can go to places and you mm -hmm. can search and it will light up the theaters yeah. and so much and there's so much more that's coming as more and more is developed and it's so cross-disciplinary it's yeah. not just us it's historians and not novelists booker prize winners used your site mm -hmm. it, it's been very gratifying it's been cited in over 12 different disciplines musicology physics history uh yeah, and historical novelists use it a lot. Genealogists use it a lot. I get questions from them from time to time and occasionally offers of information about their great, 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 great somebody. 
normally we can't use it, but it's just such a, a joy to me that it has this impact on the world. It's it's public humanities scholarship. I never set out to do that, but I've always had this belief that as long as we're paid by the public purse, we have a responsibility to give our knowledge and discoveries back to the public and that Moemel has really become a vehicle for sharing all of the discoveries that I and my colleagues and the many contributors to the project have made over the last 20 years. And uh, th those discoveries become even more meaningful when they're all gathered together in one place and they can be mutually informative. I'll give you one, one quick example, and I'm not touting, I'm not blowing my own horn because this is, the, this is one of those articles that uh, I don't know, you, you and I know what, we, you get in there and you think there may be 17 people on this planet who might, might be interested in what I'm writing right now, but I was writing on the physical location of the, of St. Uh, John's Clerkenwell uh, and right above Smithfield, uh, uh, home of the office of the rebels. Mm -hmm. And I could make my argument at one point on the physical location because it sort of fell into oblivion. Now that isn't my, that's been, that point has been made before. It didn't become a site of memory as other things have become in, in uh, London at that time. And it struck me, you know, it's, it's not on the way to anywhere. You have mm. to go there and you have to go through Smithfield. You have to go through the beef slaughter yards. And I think they hanged people in that area too. It's not a pleasant place. You have to walk through a fairly unpleasant place to get to what would have been a really pleasant place, I think. Mm. But, uh, uh, so that explains some things, right? And I think there are another, what, billion examples from people out there who uh, can, you know, you can kind of see why certain things did or did not happen. You can right. see a causal relationship. One of, one of my favorite moments is in Richard III, where Richard orders that the um, hearse of Henry VI be um, carried to Chertsey. And if you map it on the Aegis map, you can see that the, the people carrying this burden have gone downhill to the Thames and now they're being ordered by Richard to go up the hill and out of the city. Um, so he's basically just given them four, three or four more hours of backbreaking labor. And it's a throwaway line that doesn't make any sense unless you understand that there's this spatial valence behind it and you understand it as one of Richard's little throwaway cruelties early on in you the can, play. You can hear the groundlings, a few of them moaning. Yeah. Oh, you have to go experience. back yeah. up the hill. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, there's a group of them going, yeah, we've been told those <laughs> some cursing at the, uh, uh, the uh, people, the aristocrats who forced them into this uh, unreasonably difficult job. Yeah. One right. wonderful yeah. stuff. Well, all right. I'm, before we move on to more in uh, the, this site, I want to, I'm very curious, but personally about, how it's going? Are, are you still moving along and developing and mm -hmm. doing that sort of thing? And yep. I want to explain to people that not only do you see and interact and can highlight things that you can go to articles written about and very fine articles written about various and sundry places and their cultural importance. I want to kind of check in and see the progress of that right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we're, we're on our second Big Shirt grant right now, which has been a real boon. Um, and we have a few partners working with us on various things. We 
organized this particular grant around the question of walking, which is a very good uh, hot topic right now, you know, with the discovery of Ben Johnson's walk to Scotland, um, Andy Gordon's work on walking, which I think is phenomenal. We had been working with Stowe's Survey of London for quite a long time as a source. And once we started getting into the later editions of Stowe, 16.0, there's the first one is 1598. The second one is 16.03, the one that famously takes out all the references to the playhouses. If you only ever read Stowe, you wouldn't even know there were plays performed in London. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, his friend, Anthony Monday, who's also a playwright, yeah. picks up the work and issues a third edition in 1618 and another one in 1633. Yeah. And we'd been using it to do these little walks around the bounds of the wards. You can you can walk the bounds, beat the bounds by reading Stowe and following it on the map. We thought, well, what the world really needs is an edition of the 1633 Stowe. Always neglected nobody pays any attention to it even though it announces on the title page that it's finally completely finished it's at least eight times as long and if you're serious about london history you really need to to look at it because it gives you a lot of information about how london changed and grew and um, what was torn down and what replaced those things in that 35 year span between 1598 and 1633 so we decided to do I a complete... break in and say that we're, this is yeah. John Stowe for people who may just uh, come in. This is John Stowe. And this is one of the rare example, one of the rare chronicles of ambulatory London where he walks mm -hmm. through, but also he's very good at giving historical of showing us what people knew about their city at that time as he apparently was walking through. So you, it is mm -hmm. the, the narrative uh, it's not an it's it's nonfiction. It is it is uh, a re but the narrative follows a walker through London and it just tells us many many things that without Stowe just like without mm -hmm. the first folio would be completely lost to history. That's right. And this, yeah. as you pointed out, have been has been developed over several editions to the final edition, which is the most comprehensive, and that's what you have online and searchable format and again very usable uh format so i'm sorry to break in but mm -hmm. tell us tell us where stowe is going what's the future of stowe uh we've finished 1598 and uh, we're just waiting for peer review so that we can consider it done and we are well on our way with 1633 um, we will we will probably loop back to 1618 after that, and we may or may not do 1603. The 1603 text is widely available. Um, it's available in digital form from British History Online and the mm -hmm. wonderful Kingsford edition from 1908, I think. Um, mm -hmm. So so we see the real need as an edition of 1633. We have paired that with this anthology of all the mayoral shows because they are by their very nature walking text. They are plays that are performed while the performers walk from one place to another, um, or they would stop, walk to a new place and perform another pageant. And they have a loose narrative structure. Lots of place name references, and I've been interested in them for a very long time, ever since I saw a Lord Mayor show in 1997 and went back to the Goldsmiths Hall afterward for tea, because that's the library that I'd been working in for a long time. And these are famously uh, parades, uh, I guess, in right. modern that were yearly perennial, I think I'm mm -hmm. saying that October 29th, St. Simon and St. Jude's Day. 
the mayor of London, rained. yeah, the mayor of London would have this pageant parade that would be there, Macy's or you know Thanksgiving, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a big event, but it was uh, a lot of work was put into it. I, I think there were mm-hmm. a lot of uh, what there were probably guild type people who worked year round on producing materials yeah. uh, for this uh, type of uh, show. Hmm. Well, I don't think they worked year round. The evidence that I've found in the archives suggests that they usually knew in July who was likely to be elected the Lord Mayor in September. Um, because they're, it's an oligarchy. It's not really a free election. You can sort of predict who's going to win. And yeah. so um, the case I've looked at it most most closely, the Goldsmiths Company knew by July 1611 that um, Sir James Pemberton was going to become the next Lord Mayor. He was free of the Goldsmiths Company. To be Lord Mayor, you had to be free of one of the 12 great livery companies. Uh-huh. Um, the mercers, the haberdashers, the merchant tailors, the goldsmiths, the ironmongers, the salters, the cloth workers, the stationers. Uh, the uh, stationers is not one of the twelve great. Not one <laughs> of the twelve great. No, I didn't not know one that, of the twelve. I'm, I'm, I have to write this. I'm getting a. I'm getting. I'm. I'm your student now. <laughs> the stationers was not in the top twelve. You know, somewhere in the back of my mind, I think I knew that. It's so forward for us. Right, the, the stationers register, but that's right. It wasn't such a big deal when you compare it with the Mercers or, uh, yeah, the other guilds. That's right. Anyway, yeah. They would get going. You they, had- so they got going. They struck a committee. I really felt sorry for those guys. I was reading through the minutes and I could see that they were meeting three times a week, then four times a week, then five times a week, and then every day in the first weeks immediately before the pageant. So it was a lot of work. Yeah. Um, they hired a pageant poet, and in the case of the 1611 show, it was Anthony Monday, who then goes on to work on the 1618 revision to John Stowe's Survey of London, and the 1633 edition of Stowe's Survey of London. In 1633, he works with a fellow named Humphrey Dyson, who is a book collector and antiquarian in 17th century England. It's thanks to Humphrey Dyson that most of the mayoral shows have survived because I I assume that Anthony Monday would have given him copies or he would have made a point of getting them from the pageant poets. They're all bound together in a single volume in the British library. So, you know, there's all these really interesting little connections. The, The pageant books often will quote from Stowe. There's a dramatic connection as well because we have chronicle comedies like um the life and death of sir thomas gresham also known as if you know not me you know nobody which dramatizes a scene from the survey of london and takes the language of the survey almost word for word so so part of the work of moemel now is to bring stowe's survey back into the light and to start seeing it as a text that influenced literature that was co-written by people that we conventionally think of as literary people rather than um, chronicle history writers. Yeah, and I just had this sort of light go on. The people who in these guilds who were crafting uh, material for the uh, mayoral shows in October, right? What did they do after the show was over? Well, you're, you're beginning your winter season at court mm-hmm. at the office of the rebels. And I think maybe there may have been carpenters. There may have been uh, mm-hmm. any number of tradespeople who may have gone from making a show into 
helping people form the winter season at court, you know, is feasible. Carpenters, uh, in any number of uh, professions. Well, look, Cer certainly, certainly it's members of the painter stainers company who Painters, paint yeah. the scenery at court yeah. and also paint the pageants. And so wire, there's the wire drawers, uh, the, that I, I guess they, they use a lot of wire. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, the wire drawers are in the business of making gold and silver thread by drawing yeah. gold and silver through increasingly small holes until you get something that you can actually make lace with. Yes. So there's there's lots of there's lots of interesting connections to be made there. Yeah. Um, so, as you know, it's hard to get a, a, a grant to continue working on a project. So uh, while we're working on the addition of the mayoral pageant books, while we're working on the addition of Stowe, we're continuing to work on other parts of the project, but they're all nourished by the additions that we're building. So, for yeah. example, you mentioned the encyclopedia. We have um, a couple thousand locations in the MoML database of locations. Yeah. Many of them have been added because they're mentioned in Stowe. Yeah. And so we have we have added them on a need to add basis. Stowe mentions them, or a contributor comes to us and says, "Do you want to know? Do you want to um, do you want an essay on this place?" And we say yes. So we haven't mapped everything in London, and I recognize that that is a bit of a, a deficiency in MoML one that we intend to rectify over the next few years. Certainly Stowe is helping us fill in the gaps. There is a bit of a blind spot in the project in that both Stowe and the map, um, the formal name of the map is Kivitas Londinum, which I tend to use more than the Aegis map these days, just so that Aegis doesn't get credit for something he didn't do. Um, uh, they do sanitize the city. So you can't see the small alleys and the tenements and, and the survey doesn't talk about those places. So people's lived experience of London, particularly if they were poor, is not as well reflected in the site as I would like it to be in the future. If I live long enough and have enough time, I'll probably do an addition of John Taylor's works. And I think that will fill in some of the gaps in the project because he mentions the different kinds of places than Stowe and the survey do. You'll live very, very long, Janelle. And the thing is what you and Brett and others are doing is you're building this, you know, just like it's a, it's a medieval design. You start a cathedral, right? Uh, mm -hmm. When, you know, of course the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, you know, of course, Gaudi knew that he would never see the end, uh, the, the final product of that cathedral, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, you're sort of in the same business of uh, cathedral building, because there's no way that you can get everything. This is going to be built all the way through this. This could go, uh, I'm mm -hmm. thinking more than decades, right? But certainly decades. And if, if you guys are right, in terms of the basic structure of coding language and how you uh, integrate through Lemdo, how you integrate these sites, then you're going to have something, you're going to have something that 50 years from now, some young person will just use and, and not, and not bow at the altar, you know, <laughs> you know not <laughs> come right. in what, at the uh, Japanese, uh, uh, you know, clap your hand twice to sort of thank the gods for you, uh, the good things that have happened and ask them for some more good luck, of course. But uh, <laughs> uh, there, there might not be that, but there, that this, is, this is the type of stuff that you're working on that goes into perpetuity. And mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff in our field, 
and certainly in other fields in the sciences and so forth, the shelf life of a lot of research, uh, particularly in a lot of the sciences, isn't that long. You know, you, you don't get so many Einsteins and so many articles by Einstein. Uh, and the shelf life here is pretty, I almost want to use the word eternal, you know, if it can hold up to the uh, changes in technology and so forth. That's right. Yes, it's the the technology we've chosen to publish in is by its nature fragile, and yet the interest of the project is likely to be quite long, and the work is going to take a long time because it takes a long time to excavate this much history from that many texts. Well, the work itself is the, the work itself is is what uh, is scaling. In doing the work, you're scaling the interest in many other new things that mm -hmm. uh, I think David McGinnis pointed out, you know, that the older scholars, old by older, I mean, people who were doing work in the 20s, in the 50s, uh, and really up until, you know, our era where we were living, were sort of privileged in that they lived close to collections at major libraries and, and could go in and we had to take their word for it. Mm -hmm. Right, because you know, can you fly to can you fly to London and go to the British? You know, you might not have the resources. Can you uh, scoot down to the Huntington or go over to the Bodleian? You just can't do that. You can't walk across the street and check something at the uh, Camera Building in uh, Oxford to see if you're right. But now you're getting more and more able to do it from. Enid, Oklahoma. I use Enid, mm -hmm. Oklahoma as a place that I love. I think I've been there once and it's a beautiful little town, but the Bodleian Library is not there or nor right. was it in the little town that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you're giving people that. Now there's one thing, Gazetteer. Gazetteer, have we covered the- We, we haven't covered the Gazetteer. Yeah, let's in, do that. Um, yeah. In 2013, my developer colleague, Martin Holmes, with whom I work very closely on a number of things, said, you know, we've built a gazetteer without setting out to. I said, well, how long would it take to display our data in gazetteer form? He said, well, about a week. And he went away and rewrote, wrote some new processing that allowed us to pull all of the place names that we had tagged across our entire corpus and pull them together into a gazetteer. We now have over uh, 12,000 variant place names. So that means variant forms of names and also alternate spellings of all of those forms. Using cutting edge technology, we're doing what a gazette does. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so gazetteers have been around for a long time. Even something as simple as a back of the book index for a printed atlas is a form of gazetteer. To yeah. create a gazetteer, you need a place name and you need some kind of location marker, yeah. uh, GIS coordinates or something. And we realized that we actually had all that and it was already tagged in TEI tags. And so we were able to harvest it and huh. put it together. Um, right. The ultimate application that I foresee for this is link its potential for a large corpus analysis. If you want to identify places in other texts, it's very useful to have all of those variant spellings. Variant spelling searches are a nut we have yet to crack, but we happen to have encoded all of these variants. So now they're available to be plugged into natural language processing applications um, that are using named entity recognition to look for place names. Um, we're also interested in connecting our data set with other data sets, such as um, Read London Online, 
and other projects that are collecting place names and and we may be able to integrate that data through linked data protocols in the future and mm -hmm. that gazetteer keeps growing because we're still tagging things in the 1633 stow so everything we tag ends up feeding the gazetteer right Let, let's talk about this birth of, of this project and the and what happened how does janelle go from being a humanities person right and you know it's sort of an identity thing you go uh oh mm -hmm. it's not going to be i know my grandmother said doctors and lawyers you know and you're good with people tom so maybe <laughs> a businessman or something like that and then you get into some point of your life and you go i, I don't think it's going to work out that way so let, let's take it from this awareness that you are number one a humanities nerd and number mm -hmm. two you're going to be a tech nerd you're going to double up on this and not be the kind of tech nerd that goes into uh silicon valley and become <laughs> a built a billionaire in two years you're just right you're just in love with the tech yeah. along with the stuff let's go through that process sure and, sure and, get to how we got to uh, this map of early modern yeah, the map of London. Yeah. Well, I will say first that I went to university to be a doctor and I ended up not a philosophy of medicine. And I took uh, chemistry all the way up to third year and calculus all the way up to second year and physics. Wow. Yeah. Um, and uh, it wasn't for me. And I went into English immediately. But I think that interest in mathematics and physics um, and science has always been there in the background. So when I went to graduate school, um, it was all new historicism. Nobody was interested in bibliography and editing. Um, nobody was interested in archival research. I had to get a professor out of retirement to teach me how to read Elizabethan secretary. Um, and honestly, I think some people thought I was crazy for wanting to go to England and consult archives. While I was there, I was looking at livery company archives because I was curious about um, how these citizens, goldsmiths in particular, were contributing to this new kind of economy. But of course, I took a left turn. I just became fascinated with the livery companies themselves, the people in them, how they were, how they were organized, how they kept minutes, and, and then sort of pageantry swam into my view. And I wanted to do more research on other livery companies and their pageantry. Most livery companies have now deposited their records with the Guild Hall. If they don't keep their own archive, it's at the Guild Hall. The manuscript reading room at the Guild Hall has on the wall had on the wall one of three surviving copies of the Aegis map. And I uh. needed to stretch once in a while, and so I would go over and look at the map. Um, and oh, and let me I'm I'm doing ambulatory going ambulatory again. All right, Guild Hall. Where, where are we now? Are we at Saint, current St. Paul's in, it's, we're in that it's, area? It's just a little bit north of St. Paul's and a little bit east. A little bit. Yeah. East. Yep. St. Lawrence right. Lane. Little, yes. And you can just walk in there. Now, they moved some of those records over to mm -hmm. the Metropolitan uh, London. They, they, they moved most of their records including the Aegis map over to the London Metropolitan Archives. Right. But the livery companies rightly said we want our records to stay in the old city of London. Right. So the Guildhall still holds those things as well as having a library. And by livery, we mean established, um, 
would you call them a kind of trade union now maybe, but uh, uh, I don't think it would be more like the bar. If you were, you have to be a member of the bar to practice mm -hmm. law, right? So it's, it's more like that. It's not just a, a bunch of dock workers gathering together, wonderful heroic stuff, but this, these yeah. are people and they were, they had pride and they had, and I think the livery just means that what they wore right they, they they had uniforms that's right they had they had particular clothing that they wore for ceremonial occasions right um certainly trade guilds and uh, unions emerge from that context but we tend to think today of unions representing the working man the livery companies began that way as trade organizations but by the time we're talking about they generally were um, very rich oligarchical organizations and they were increasingly divided from the trade that they purportedly represented mm -hmm. and regulated so you could become a member of the goldsmith's company if your father was a member of the goldsmith's company but you yourself might practice quite a different trade and that's that's still the case um now these companies are alive and well but very few of them actually practice the trade that is yeah. embodied in the company's name yeah i'm thinking of edmund spencer you read in his biography that he was educated at the merchant tailor school and yeah. for me i'm going well merchant and tailor that doesn't yeah. sound like but it's a big deal by the time spencer <laughs> goes there it's a big deal to be able to have access to the merchant tailor school because the the, the status had risen. That's right. right. So the merchant tailors are one of the 12 great companies and they yeah. subsidize the school. Yeah. In fact, they've had a long running argument with, I think it's the haberdashers. They can't agree about who's number six and who's number seven in the, in the hierarchy of the livery companies. The mercers is number one, the cloth workers are number 12. So they switch places every year and nobody can remember who's number six and who's number seven. And that gives us the phrase to be at sixes and sevens. Oh, I, this is this is going going yeah. to school with Professor Jenstad. I am absolutely there are two things that oh, I'm uh, excited. I have I have some homework now. Yeah. So I, I'm interested in joiners because of Midsummer Night's Dream. And I found out not long ago that joiners didn't have their their own group they didn't have their own guild until the 70s 1570s mm -hmm. they were joined on i think with the carpenters yeah the carpenters guild splits up into the joiners and the carpenters yeah so yeah, there's I'm, a number I'm right of about, i'm right about that i'm just to check yeah. because i yeah. it's coming out yeah. So yeah. I don't want to be wrong. I know. I always think that those rude mechanicals are not really as unskilled as the play makes them out oh, to be. No, no. You know, they're, they're practitioners of trades. They're members of livery companies. I think that's how London citizens viewing Midsummer Night's Dream would see them. Oh, there's a joiner just like us. Hey, they're making fun of him. <laughs> I know. That's right. It's just it's just that. And I make that point. And yeah. I'm also trying to look for, well, I'm getting, going off on a rabbit trail, but in that dramatic, well, you're in, we're not on a rabbit trail. This is it. These were prestige. You, people wanted, these were, uh, you had to be an apprentice. You had to what work for seven years and, seven uh, years. and slave kind of slave type labor, you know, and meager uh, wages and food, whatever, and learned. And then your master had to release you and make a mm -hmm. free free man out of you and then uh and then you were a free man you know you you were certified so this is a big big deal and to be a member of this group 
that would be your extended family that would protect mm -hmm. you, protect your business and, uh, and give you status. So yeah, those jokes in Midsummer Night's Dream, when the, particularly when the aristocrats are sort of making fun of them as players mm -hmm. at the end and so forth, there's a lot, there are a lot of layers of the resonance because- That's you, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is also, I mean, as you know, many actors are members of the livery companies because it gives them status in London. Yeah. It's not their status as a player that gives them status. It's their status as bricklayers in Johnson's case and, and others, although Johnson would eschew that. Um, John Lowen was a member of the Goldsmiths Company, famously played Falstaff, and the livery companies also tapped those actors to perform in the Lord Mayor shows. Yeah. Oh, yeah. what wonderful stuff. What wonderful stuff. It really hit that uh, Peter, Peter Quince is the carpenter, and he doesn't know how to build a wall. No. Bottom the weaver knows how to build the wall. I just noticed that after all these years of studying Midsummer Night's Dream, I just asked, what a joke that would have been. Yeah. Right? We need a wall. How do we do a wall? <laughs> and he they should they that. should be experts so, of that. Yeah. They yeah. Should wall. Uh, and so That's the right. weaver has to say, and you want to put this rough cast and loam and rough cast on the wall, telling the guy who would know how to do this, how to do it. But it is about people, I think probably a standing joke about people who because they are qualified in one trade begin to believe that they can do other things that's right bottom yeah. wants to play all the parts in the play yeah. and he wants to play all the trades as well yeah yes so we can um, get well you that. wanted you wanted to know um how moemble started so um you know the library tosses you out at 5 p.m and after i'd spent a day reading manuscripts and taking breaks looking at this map I went out into the streets and I walked the same streets that I'd been looking at on the map. Yeah. Um, the internet was just getting going then and I, I did my first huge research trip to London in 1997. Yeah. Um, and I went back again so I was there for for months on end, always in the off seasons so November, December and then February, March, yeah. I'd walk through these dark streets. And I kept thinking, I wish my students could have this experience. Yeah. The Guildhall let me take home a photocopy of the Aegis map. I got it home in pieces. I taped it together on my kitchen floor and I put clear plastic Mac tack on it. I would take it into my classroom and I would write on it in erasable markers. Then I started my career. My first tenure track position was at the University of Windsor and they had a course called Writing Hypertext. I had no experience of digital humanities whatsoever, but the students were looking for a project and I thought, well, it would be cool if we could digitize this map and then I could work with it in digital form. And that's how the project began. Uh, so since year, then we've- year 1998 or seven- 1999 is nine. the birthday of Moemel. It did not go live until, um, 2006, by which time I was at the University of Victoria, but I had used it as an intranet site at the University of Windsor for a number of years. And we used it as a pedagogical exercise. Students wrote contributions for it. They taught me how to write HTML. Hmm. And that has been the story of Moemel right from the beginning. Um, even the name Moemel, it was a student who started calling it that. And we, the whole team adopted it. And then that became the acronym for the website. My students have learned things they've taught me. I've taught the next batch of students. They've learned more, they've taught me. So at this point, I now know TEI, various languages, uh, XML languages, some XSLT, um, 
and a number of other programming languages. I'm even on the Text Encoding Initiative Technical Council right now, which is a lot of fun because we get to shape the markup language that lies behind this. And it's been a story of, of bumps, ups and downs, stops and starts. Did we have funding? Did I have time? Um, did I, we would occasionally hit technological dead ends and I would just have to wait until a new technology came along that solved the problem. I've learned GIS along the way. We've learned about repositories. Um, and now we're starting to think about long-term preservation. So well, the, the- MOMO does not have the same problem that ISE. No, no. I like to say that Lemdo is built by the team that built MoML <laughs> because I think it gives people confidence. Um, we know what we're doing and I'm, I'm not tooting my own horn there. We know what we're doing because I have the great good fortune to be at the University of Victoria where I can work with these staff programmers in yeah. the Humanities Computing and Media Center. And we have collectively uh, been working, all of the staff in HCMC, three research faculty at UVic and three librarians. We've been working since 2016 on questions around digital preservation. So MoML has a fighting chance of surviving at least 50 years because every output is a static output that is not dependent on a backend server. You, we really are giving you that pre-baked HTML page that you thought you were getting all along. Okay. They're okay. all pre-made and you could actually load up MoML on a thumb drive and run it without the internet. You could go to our, um, our Jenkins build server and you could download all of our HTML pages onto your own laptop and then run them in your classroom. So, okay. So they're linked that way. That's right. You don't have to bounce them off a server. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Wow. Wow. And that was not seen. Nobody. You're certainly welcome to come and get them at UVic, but you can also download the HTML pages and work with them yeah. uh, where you are. And I, you know, I think that's a really important thing to do, especially with, you know, we're in a climate crisis. Every time you make a ping on a server, you're calling on a certain amount of carbon, plastic, metal, anything that yeah. we can do to make these sites flat, nimble, and shareable in ways that don't depend on us using global technologies, um, we're doing something good for the planet. Right, right. And this has come up recently with the uh, Bitcoin and um, cryptocurrency, the mm -hmm. amount of uh, pressure they put on servers and so forth. You are in right now, I noticed the announcement of 6.5. So you're up to level 6.5 mm -hmm. and that's happened. And you sent me a little note here saying 6.6 .6 is at the end of June. Now, is that a hard deadline? The end of June 6.6? No, it, it's not a hard deadline, but we do operate by the release model, which I think is um, important for digital projects. It's important to work towards milestones when you release new material. It's motivating for the local team. It's motivating for contributors. I just said to someone this morning, if you would like to see your work come out in the 6.6 .6 release, I need it by such and such a date so that we can encode it and get it peer reviewed. And it goes back to 6.3. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to talk about linked data. But right before we do that, I want to ask you about copyright. Uh, for, for I know a lot of people, like I have an article that I'm trying to get permissions for that has, guess what? A I would like to use an image from the Aegis mm -hmm. map that basically I screenshotted 
from your mm -hmm. site. Now, underneath there, I have your name and you know how you give instructions <laughs> and how to do it Chicago style and so forth. Yeah. I have everything just right there um, credited. Is that okay? Absolutely. Yes. And one of the things that will be coming out in this new release is it's clearer instructions on what you can do with the images from the site. I get a lot of email requests from people saying, can I use the map? The answer is yes, you may use the map. It is licensed under a Creative Commons license and you are free to do with it what you want with credit. Um, you do not have to ask the Metropolitan Archives for permission while they provided us with fresh scans so that I didn't have to work with my photocopy, <laughs> tape together photocopy. Uh, we took that and we edited the content. So it's the same as editing a Shakespeare play. We spent about two years editing the map. We supplied content that was lost. We sharpened up the lines. Um, we re-skewed it because the uh, pictures that we have don't match up. So we spent quite a bit of time trying to create a kind of ideal version of the Aegis map, the same way you would do with the Shakespeare text. You don't hand people the first folio. You prepare a text that is going to be accessible in the classroom. You might refer back to the folio <laughs> to show them what you started with, but you want to create a usable product in the end. If you use the Aegis map, you are really citing our edition of the Aegis map. So it would be like, uh, well, let's go back to David Bevington, his uh, collect, collected Shakespeare. It would be like citing Bevington's collected Shakespeare, maybe uh, The Tempest inside that edition. It's, it's, uh, it's a product that was issued by, I don't know, maybe it was mm -hmm. University of Chicago or um, I can't remember. We used that big Bevington. Longman. It was Longman. It was Longman's. It was Longman's. But uh, so that is the same. Just... Uh, as long mm -hmm. as, uh, as credit is given, that's good. Um, because, I, uh, uh, well, now we have video evidence here. And if we get it out <laughs> to enough people, then you'll get fewer emails. Yeah. I do yeah. like to know when people use the map. Um, it's, it's great for us to know, especially my team. My, I have students working with me all the time. You know, they come and go every couple of years. They love to know that their work is making a difference out there in the world, Absolutely. especially if they've been encoding a chapter of Stowe for three weeks. It's not yeah. always exciting work. When we find out that somebody quoted the Stowe or used the map, it's really exciting for the student team members. So do tell us if you use the map, but it is free for you to use without asking permission. We just ask for a credit. You can draw on the map and download your drawing. If you want to illustrate a point in an article or a presentation or a book, go for it, use it. That's what it's there for. That's why we built it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, one thing I, I keep thinking, I, I do want to, I, this is stuff that came up again with David McGinnis, we were talking about, I, I did some contributions to his lost plays mm. uh, because I, I, I enjoyed it. I have a love of it. And I, don't, I didn't need it, but I was thinking about some of my colleagues in Japan who may have uh, not, who, who need to show that they're doing work, but who would not be given credit for certain types of digital contributions, right? And I understand how a contribution to a dictionary, let's say, to use an older, is maybe not the same as a refereed article in a major journal and that sort of thing. And uh, in the case of lost plays, you're using is sort of tertiary uh, information, but mm -hmm. it's not, 
having done it, I, it's not easy work and you have to go in and do some mining. There's a little bit of uh, ditch digging in there. I, okay, let's say that a referee publication has a value of one, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that a, a contribution to digital development like LDP or uh, what you're doing or many other places, I don't think the value should be zero. No, absolutely not. We, we can talk about where it is between zero and one, maybe it's not one, and maybe debate whether it's 0 0.2 or 0 0.6 or whatever, a faculty mm -hmm. or, or funding agency or whatever, however we set country, national system. But I do want to kind of, that's a little bit of a drum I want to beat for younger scholars, right? Because right. We, uh, this, is, this, this requires people hours. This stuff, there's a, there are a lot of people hours that uh, and graduate students notoriously graduate, darn them. They, you know, so <laughs> you have a new set coming through and you, you need people all the time doing this and that requires funding and, uh, and so forth. And to get people involved, I think they wanna feel, yeah, we contributed to the humanities. We helped carry the torch forward, but they'd like mm -hmm. something to put on paper if they wanna get another job somewhere right. too so yeah well we we have a few things that we do um i really think that we have to reorient our our standard in this discipline so for a long time it was digital versus print but really the standard is peer-reviewed or not peer-reviewed if something is peer-reviewed it matters not the medium in fact most of us access our journals including shakespeare quarterly through a digital format and if we're really honest with ourselves we recognize that they're originally created in digital format and then printed out so why are we valuing one particular medium over another print is an archival format that's it it sticks around but it's not intrinsically better uh, and i think that is changing in the field slowly um, I, this last year, we've certainly seen a tremendous boom in provision of electronic resources. Libraries have really gotten on board with that. And libraries around the world are also making their unique archival materials available digitally. So our, our scholarship is increasingly digital and, and that is going to feed into a new um, valuing of digital tools. Yeah. And I think at this point, Moemel is really functioning like a publisher. Yes, we're doing our own work. Um, I tend to write articles about it. Um, it's, it's really difficult to explain on my CV what exactly Moemel is. It needs, when I did put it up for credit, I wrote a nine page explanation so that yeah. people would understand those yeah. back end things that you don't see. But for other people who come to us with a contribution, I get it peer reviewed or I peer review it myself in some cases. Um, All right, so if we read something about the Globe Theater, which I think there is in fact an article on the Globe Theater, mm -hmm. you go to that, that is a peer review publication on the- not, Yeah, not everything is peer reviewed. Um, it's, we, we found a way of creating an interesting mix of materials that are provided by the local team mm -hmm. during the course of our daily research as we're editing Stowe. Uh, pedagogical partnerships. 
So we have things written by undergrad students and graduate students, and we also have things from external contributors. Mm -hmm. And we tell you what level the person was when they wrote it. If you look on the left-hand side of any page, it will tell you if it's a scholarly contribution, an undergraduate student contribution, a graduate student contribution, if it, it yeah. came to us via pedagogical partnership, and if it's peer-reviewed or not. And it took a couple of years to work out that system, but I am a teacher by heart and I created this for students. There was some talk about cordoning off student work in a special place like the ISE's annex, but I thought, no, undergraduate students often do original research. They hand it in to their, their teacher, their professor, it gets marked and then it disappears and somebody else has to make that original discovery. I really believe that students are capable of doing original research. And they're also capable of doing good writing. And when you put it on the internet where other scholars can use it and their grandma can see it, suddenly the stakes are high. I, I'm a great believer in high stakes writing. I know we talk a lot about low stakes writing, but I, th I think you want your end product to be high stakes to make a difference in the world. And yeah. that can be profoundly motivating for the students. I get yeah. good work. Yeah, and grandma is important. Yeah, uh, and uh, believe me, did have we? Uh, that this is great. That's that clears up a lot actually for me right now in the moment about what kind of uh, argument, uh, not argument like fight argument, but uh, what classical. Uh, as I'm, I tell people, I'm sort of in the autumn of my career, so I can talk. I can, I have enough uh, moxie maybe to talk with my colleagues about how to evaluate those of us, our students, mm -hmm. and also our graduate students, but also younger faculty, and provide not just at our place, but also throughout our whole system, mm -hmm. uh, areas of potential publication, right, that uh, young people could, could look into. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that's, and of course, I'm, you know, certain stereotypes are true. I'm in a culture that's very, very detail-oriented and extremely good at getting details right. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas yeah. maybe in the second language situation, not as comfortable with Lacanian readings of a, <laughs> the hermeneutics of this or that and yeah. uh, something written by William Faulkner or whatnot. And uh, so, uh, and the, the labor is needed, it's, it's out there. We have to just find the place to connect and uh, we could, uh, get much more, much more done more quickly, I think. Mm -hmm. Now, have we talked about the linked data? You put a note in here about a linked data, and I, we may have talked about it a bit with Lindo, but uh, you were talking about at the end of, uh, of our talk about the map, the um, linked data. Mm -hmm. um I won't pretend to give an explanation of linked data. <laughs> this is this is the dream of the semantic web that Tim Berners-Lee articulated in 2006. You know, could we not use the internet to connect information together in more meaningful ways? Yeah. Um, so I'm part of a, a big cross Canada project spearheaded by Susan Brown at the University of Guelph uh, to build a triple store for linked humanities data. Um, it's the infrastructure is actually being built here at UVic, um, but there are people contributing data all across Canada. So I, what we're trying to do with that is surface the data sets that people create in the course of their humanities research. I'm sure many of us have lists of 
books that we've looked at or lists of family members for somebody we've investigated over time or um, bibliographies. Um, we've collected names and dates and events and we've organized them in spreadsheets. The idea is to get this information out there in a meaningful way so that that information can be used by other people and also connected with other people's data sets. So I'm using a lot of linked data inside my projects. So linked data seems kind of natural to me. You know, why wouldn't you connect something in this article to something in that article? It, it becomes self-annotating in a way. If you have enough information in your system, you can start to pull it together. Humanists don't simply produce articles and books. We also go out and discover things that we then can present to the world as data sets that other people can work with. We're really behind the rest of the community, the academic community on that. It's been standard practice in the sciences to deposit your research data into centralized repositories for at least 10 years. A lot of infrastructure has been built to collect that kind of data. For example, there's VertNet. Anybody who's doing research on vertebrates has to put their um, data into that database when they're finished it. Canada and other countries, when they give you a grant, are now requiring that you have a data management plan. You have to say what you're going to do with your data. And it's making us think about our research in different ways. What we output is not simply arguments, but we are gathering information. Um, Moemel's data set is what it is because people who are detail oriented and experts on particular things have contributed things to Moemel. I sit here in Canada on the far west coast in a very beautiful place and I work on London where my mother was born. Her house was demolished by a doodlebug in 1943 <laughs> and she came to Canada by a circuitous route. Uh, but I'm not on site to do the kind of historical archival research that I love to do, I really depend on other people to say, hey, I am an expert on Arundel House. Would you like me to write the article on it? Yes, I would. And when you contribute your data to Moemel, it then functions as a check on other contributions to Moemel. Um, the, the term I use is cross-refereeing. So if you write about this street and I write about this street, at some point we will be consulting the same sources. If the conclusions that I draw are different from the conclusions you draw, then we have a conversation and suddenly we are actually networking our data. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking also that there are, I don't want to use the wrong term, but the if you look at the uh, the, the map itself is a, the, the mac, kind of macrocosmically, is that right? Mm -hmm. But there are microcosms within uh, and, uh, the, well, playhouses. And there's the uh, St. Paul's Cathedral. There's the, um, right. uh, that I'm very interested in. Yes. Oh, I, I want to add yes. something about St. Paul's and bookshops. You mentioned that at the beginning. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Right. Uh -huh, I, uh -huh. I share your love of the stationer's company and yeah. you know, a, there's a little sense of regret that they weren't one of the great 12 and didn't put on a mural show. But, um, you know, we're, we're book people, so we're interested in what's happening in St. Paul's Churchyard. And we have um, uh, a contribution forthcoming to Moemel, which is actually going to blow up the St. Paul's Churchyard area using some of Peter Blaney's maps and give you a Moemel style map of the churchyard. Okay, you can blow up for mm -hmm. using from, now there's that Paul's 
there's the um, NC State project, the John Wall. John Wall's wonderful yeah, project, yeah. yeah. And, between, uh, the, between the work that this contributor is doing, Erica Zimmer is her name, and she's at MIT. I know Erica. I know I was about to bring up her name in case you didn't. She's yeah. done this. She's been working on this for years, as, right. ha, as have I, but I have been more interested in, actually, I'm interested, I think I have some article in an obscure place or a conference about the uh, uses of... Um, um, uh, text encoding TEI as, uh, as a metadata structure for uh, tagging mm -hmm. in terms of trying to use that as a way of uh, linking the physical playhouses with the other data that we have from the ESTC and the uh, mm -hmm. stationaries record, that yeah. sort of thing, uh, which would be a, a pretty big hotspot. You know, let's face it, uh, that would mm -hmm. go well, well beyond drama. It would go into the history of the book. It would go into... Oh, the history of consciousness. Yeah. My goodness. You know, we, need, we need to collaborate again. I've been trying to parse the data in the ESTC since 2015. Yeah. It's, 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 un, it's not even structured XML. The imprint line in the no. ESTC is a single field. No. And it's really anywhere up to six data points. Yeah. Published by or printed by, that's two data points, yeah. by so-and-so for somebody else at such yeah. and such a place. Each of those things needs to become an entity and yes. we need to be able to explore the connections yeah. between those entities across the entire ESTC. Yes, because, well, Blaney points it out, and there's a difference between a wholesale, wholesaler and a retailer, a exactly. publisher and a guy who just, you know, prints the books. Yeah. And that's a very yeah. important distinction. And no one's more important than the other, but it's an uh -huh. important distinction to make. Yeah. And also, hmm, there's a lot that could be That's done right. uh, yeah. uh, with that. And the Stationers Hall, of course, was on the west side. And it was a big, even though they weren't part of the Big 12 now mm -hmm. that I'm, uh, mm -hmm. that's been confirmed, they had a very, uh, that was the old Peter College. That was a, a big structure. Yeah. And as you walk through that big west door, there it is. It's prominent. And they were powerful. You know, if that's you, right. They actually had three halls over the period of time that the that Moemel covers. It was a real challenge to figure out how we were going to encode those things so that you could find the right hall for the right period. Well, I wanted to do You see, I was going to email you and I didn't. And I'll tell you why. And I don't want to encourage people to email you because <laughs> I don't think one of the things on your list is what Janelle wants more email. Uh, nobody, particularly during a pandemic, wants more email of the amount we get now. But and so I just didn't. But I was uh, because I remember seeing out of the hotel I was staying in a few years ago, Stationers Hall. I didn't enter. I didn't have time. And I was I'm going to mm. come back. Never did. You know, we don't live in London. So. Uh, I, I'm going, how did it, I'm wondering how it got from the West door to where, and I was having trouble finding it. We won't do that now, no. but it will, if, if, if I'm, I won't do it immediately, but down the road, if I email you and ask you about locations of stationers hall, will you, will you answer? It's, we actually have that forthcoming in 6.6. .6, so oh, okay. I'll give you so I can just. I can I'll just, send you the link to the 6.6 .6 and you can check it for us and see if we did a good job of identifying the three locations of Stationers Hall. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I know the first, right? But I think we all do from mm -hmm. uh, the uh, diagrams of the cathedral and so forth. But uh, oh, we could just go on and on. All right. Mm -hmm. So let me go uh, out to the link data. We're going, we were going to return, but I think we've kind of made the point that <clears throat> we are, uh, Limdo 
is going to solve a lot of uh, problems in terms of the history of consciousness about the early modern period in London and not not be uh, obsolesce. This is what is the opposite of corporate planned obsolescence. It is planned non-obsolescence. It's building... Right. It's building a fine, I don't want to say Rolls Royce, you know, that might sound too pretentious, but it's building a fine product in 1962 that mm-hmm. we can use right now. Right. right? That's and, right. and it's been developed. It's a better product, but it's, it's the, the core technology. You know, I think a good example is the airplanes that we fly in. I think if we found out when they were built, when I'm in right over the Pacific Ocean, it would be a little unsettling. It's, you know, right. it might be time to order a, a cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> I hope Lambdo keeps flying for a long time. Yeah. You know, but, but ultimately the platform itself is a means to an end. And the end that we want is editions of early modern drama that can be used in classrooms and in rehearsal halls and by scholars around the world. And to that end, Lemdo is a way of building anthologies. We've, we've worked out a way of individual anthologies being able to um, have their own release schedules. So QME will, doesn't have to wait for DRE to finish its stuff to be released. Right. Lemdo is a way of making a website that is static and preservable and doesn't have any server-side dependencies that the project can then have hosted either here at UVic or at another place if they want. Yeah. Okay. So we're kind of like the factory. We're not the car. (laughs) You're the factory. That's better. That's better. That works better. You're not the car. You're not the single product. You are the factory. Now, this endings compliance, I want to kind of help educate not only me, but of course our viewers on Mm -hmm. uh, that. This is a, this is a fairly new word for, uh, those of us who are not in the middle of things. So endings compliance mm. and the endings project. We, I don't think we've spoken directly about the end. It, I'm interested also in, in the graveyard of the, uh, the churchyard was also a graveyard. I mean, people were buried there. That's right. <laughs> and um, I remember going to uh, Bodley and did a, uh, worked on the uh, quartos of uh, Shakespearean quartos. And it was one of these things that didn't have, wasn't built right, apparently. Mm. Uh, and nobody knew, it's nobody's fault. They were just using what they used. And I went, I remember going to the site because I needed it. And it said, this has become, it's reached end of end of life. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, <laughs> the cordos are dead. And, uh, you know, this, okay. So we are talking about end of life endings oh, yeah. projects. So help us with this. Are we trying to not have them end or we're, we're trying or, not to have great projects like the Shakespeare Quartos archive. And I loved that project. I and, loved it. you know, I, I actually did. didn't replicate that work because I thought they had done it so well. Yeah. And then, you know, my students and I went to use it and it was end of life. Me uh, too. And yeah, I know people and, who are superb who were on that, but they moved to other things. One thing about your project is this had Janelle kind of is there. You've been there. There's a thereness mm-hmm. there. So mm-hmm. you're not in London, but you're in Victoria and you've been, <laughs> you know, it, you were, you were there. And, yeah. and that's, that's what these projects need is um, 
people who stick around. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they need champions, but at the end of the day, they need stakeholders who will continue the work. So, you know, I have I have wonderful young early career collaborators now, Mark Caitler at Medicine Hat, Erica Zimmer at MIT, yeah. Kristen Abbott Bennett at Framingham, yeah. who are keeping Moemel um, alive and exciting. Um, and, and in a way, they've become my mentors. There was a wonderful article in the Chronicle of Higher Education recently about reverse mentoring. Yeah. You know, they mentor me. They keep me fresh. They keep me up to date on criticism I might not have seen because I'm busy administrating. Oh, yeah. um, and it's been a very productive relationship. If they want to continue on with Moemel, then I will happily hand it over to them or to any others who might come along. And Lemdo's the same. Right from the beginning, I'm building succession plans into it and fail safes everywhere so that I myself am not the single point of failure in Lemdo. Yeah. It has to keep going because other people's work is invested in it and public money is invested in it. So it can't be dependent on me. And that's something that we've been looking at in the endings project. Um, we started with this question about how many digital projects that had been funded by our national granting agency were still alive. And we were dismayed to discover that less than 20% of them still had an active web presence. Yeah. So then we polled those people um, who were the project PIs and, and asked them a series of questions in order to determine what happened. There are so many things that can cause a, a project to fail. There can be hosting problems, technical problems, the end of life problem, um, people problems. Somebody leaves the project or loses interest in it or, or passes away. Yeah, um, has, to leave, has to leave, runs out of funding and has to go to yeah. somewhere else to find. That's right. The, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, there's so many points of failure in a digital project and the endings project is about minimizing those mm. things. Mm. So uh, we, we came to the conclusion after much work and interviewing that we really want to be able to output stable things that will survive even after any of those things fails. A static website is the way that you achieve the principle of lots of copies keeps stuff safe. How do you get those copies out there? Well, you make a really lightweight website that doesn't have any server de um, side dependencies. And then you put it on lots of thumb drives and you send it around the world, just like a book. We used to do that with CDs, you know, yeah, we, do <laughs> we made people buy them. Yeah. Uh, we've actually set it up so you can go and download it from if you know the link, you go download the whole site and install it somewhere. And, and we think that's the way to do it. You know, 500 copies of a book keeps the book alive. 500 copies of the static website keeps stuff alive. And the only technologies that are required to run an index compliant website are HTML and CSS, the two founding languages of the yeah. internet. Yeah. So yeah. you can build your website however you want, but make yeah. sure that the final product is something that is, is very simple and very static because the point for a lot of scholars is not the technology, it's it's the information, it's the research, it's the scholarly arguments, the data sets. There, are, there is a subset of digital humanists who are interested in creating those technologies, but a lot of us use those technologies and are not particularly interested in digital innovation. We're interested in seeing our work survive and our arguments and our information get out there in the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you... <laughs> <laughs> you just said it. That is exactly 
Um, how can you gr agree with someone more than 100%? I, I don't think it's mathematically possible, but we're into humanities. And um, <laughs> so we get to do all kinds of things. I, um, the, uh, you, the tension between dynamism and endings compliance, mm -hmm. and that, I was thinking about that when you uh, we're talking all I thought about was you know pulling in an ad from another server you know how mm -hmm. but I mean in, in most of your commercial websites now you're at how however many servers are just jumping into the that's um, right to the fold and the you know all of this stuff is happening you're saying no let's kind of go back to the 90s a bit you know where yeah uh because we're still using that we're still using those that's right uh, uh, Those 90s websites still work. That was one of our work. inspirations for the yeah. endings project. They might look funny. Yeah. Um, I, saying... I, I sometimes think OML is like publishing a book with um, Rutledge, and then every five years, Rutledge asks you to design a new cover for your book. <laughs> 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 Same content, but you got to update the look or you look up outdated. And that's yeah. one reason why we are saving all the old releases of our site, yeah. because we think that the design is part of the site and is worth archiving. Yeah, well, uh, I know Google is in trouble kind of all the time for, but one thing that I've always loved about Google, uh, if I haven't loved other things about Google recently, is from the beginning, they said, okay, here's your white page. Mm -hmm. And I remember when Yahoo said, no, we're going to go all kinds of ways, you know, da, 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 da. And Google says, no, we're, just, we're sticking with that. You know, Halloween, we might put, but that's the right idea. Whoever mm -hmm. did that, knew what they were doing. And that was 20 years ago or more. Yeah, it doesn't age. It doesn't age. You're there. And, and there's nothing wrong with the white page. We're not coming in. If we want to go see art, we'll go down to a museum. You know, right. if we want to see things jump around, there's all kinds of stuff, you know, watch television. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's another thing I love about the uh, work that you guys are doing. Well, I think that we're, have, we have come close to a kind of ending. <laughs> not, not an endings but a kind of ending and Janelle what I want to uh, emphasize is that uh, you uh, you are now a friend of the show so you have stuff coming over and you you were a friend of the show before we even started but the um, and depending on on uh, my endings right and I, I plan to be around for a while uh, and I plan to keep this going for a while because I I think me and other many others I hope will will help to get this out there because I your name on a web page isn't the same as me talking to you uh, and uh, and and also, I think that we are probably mm, feeling it from pandemic uh, separation, you know, human contact, going to conferences and so forth. But I'm hoping that what will happen here is that the, the post-pandemic will give us more opportunities to meet like this mm -hmm. to save us the expense and just in the same way you know, we can't just get on a plane and go to London anytime we need to find out one something for a footnote, right? So uh, that's what I'm hoping. And I'm hoping that you'll be willing to come back on when there are other new in innovations, particularly when Limdo seems to be, uh, when all of this stuff gets, so I want to hear about it. You know, who, who in Shakespeare studies doesn't want to know the future of ISE? you know, and uh, certainly the futures of DRE, you know, I want to, I want to be able to go and, and I want to be able to teach, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, anybody, John Webster, uh, mm -hmm. uh, f 
Ford, some of the, you know, they all, all names that, and not just Shakespeare, but I also want to be able to teach Shakespeare with annotations. It helps. Okay. Well, I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, and if I could ask you, I accidentally, uh, I accidentally punted one of my, one of my guests off of the zoom, but I'm going to stay on zoom. And, uh, I, I want to thank you. My colleagues in Japan, Shakespeare Society of Japan in early modern studies and in literary studies, historical studies, all of are going to be absolutely thrilled and will feel a connection with your project when they can see all or parts of this uh, conversation that we've had. And, uh, and so it's very good for, for that, but also for other people who want to come in. Thank you so much, Janelle. Thank you, Tom.